Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Product Management Growth Through Failure. This week I'm joined by Ian Harvey. Ian is a coach helping organisations change their focus from outputs to outcomes. His typical clients are high growth, tech-oriented startups, where he works hands-on to help leadership teams articulate their strategy, define persistent metrics and set and achieve powerful goals using OKR. His recent clients include fintech and insurtech unicorns and a leading EU VC. In this episode, we unpack some of Ian's top OKR tips and also some of the most common OKR failings that he sees. Ian also shares some very candid and honest failings that he has made in his career and how he has learned and grown from them. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ian, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Shall we start by talking about Arsenal's monumental failure at Everton at the weekend? Can they grow from that failure and win the league? That's a very good question, Mark. I mean, fortunately, you know, you don't have to play the minnows every week. So um, there's there's a relief there. And uh, hopefully you can repeat the trick with, with Man City as well, which would be great. Um, uh, yeah. Failure is part of life, part of football. We're going to, we'll be there at the end of the season. Top six. Top six. Well, I hope you win the league, actually. I think it's, uh, it'd be good to shake it up a bit. Although you are basically City's B team with Arteta and his uh, his steals, but we'll we'll uh, we'll let you off and let's hope you can break the break the tradition of City winning everything these days. Yeah, well, if they get fined a few points, it might help. Well, and, and if they're giving away players, you know, Everton will happily take Haaland and pretty much. Well, <laughs> we'll just take the full eleven. You know, we'll take it all. Oh. We'll take it all. Go for it. Go for it. So you run Outcomes Thinking. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and you know your role there and what you do. Yeah, so I guess it'd be good to start with how, how I got there. And I've had this kind of career where I was never really sure what I wanted to do You know, when I grew up. And I'm still not sure what I want to do when I grew up, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, my, my first ever role, before the, before the dawn of the internet, that's how long we're going back, um, I was a computer science graduate working with a nursing home company, helping them kind of put in their first IT systems really, and uh, and building some software for them. I then went into corporate strategy with GlaxoSmithKline. Um, also worked there as what was effectively a product management role before the words even you know were put together in that form. Um, and really, that's been the nature of my career, just moving into engineering management product management, portfolio management. And really the thing that unified that career was two questions. And I, I'm not one of these people who's very good at being told what to do, which is probably why I work for myself. And now it's, you know, to be honest, it's only my wife who gets, gets that privilege. Um, and it's, why are we doing this? And I was looking for an answer which wasn't because the CEO says so. And how will we know if succeeded? And those questions, whether I was working in engineering or products or strategy, they were always there. And I guess three or four years ago, that's probably five years ago now, at Elsevier, we'd work with Silicon Valley Product Group. Um, we've done, um, Chris Jones from Marty Kagan's team trained us and I introduced this concept called OKRs. And it really resonated with me. Um, I love the way you know, the objectives seem to fit you know, why are we doing this. And the key results were how will we know we've succeeded? And um, so I implemented them at Elsevier, and they, you know, they they were ups and downs and that. Probably the first example of failure we can talk about, but some success as well. And I worked with a guy called Felipe Castro, who's pretty well known in OKRs, still one of the thought leaders. And at the end of that process, 
I really like this. I want to have a go at implementing it myself. So I left Elsevier, set up Outcomes Thinking, and it's gone from there, really mainly implementing OKRs for organizations. But this kind of connection between OKRs and strategy is where I really focus and helping helping organizations articulate you know, that connection. It's really interesting. So you went from being the train being trained to being the trainer of, of OKRs. Yeah, as they say, kind of gamekeeper to poacher. And I've done that. I've done that. I've got history in that before as a consultant. Um, I went to work with EMC, having worked with EMC's uh, kind of software. So yeah, I'd, I'd kind of taken that path before, and it just it just really resonated with me that 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 whole principle. And I I enjoy working with lots of organ or several organisations at once. When you work in one organisation, it, it it can get very intense. Um, there's only generally speaking, you're working on one thing unless you're a very senior leader. And I like the, the ability or the option to be able to kind of look at completely different contexts. So I may be working with an insure tech at one point and a venture capitalist at another or at the same time, which I, I enjoy personally. It's, it's a nice way to work. And do you think obviously kind of where you are consulting and looking across, you know, cross industry, cross products, is there a, a constant in this strategy of OKRs that allows you to still bring the value, but also kind of bring fresh eyes to old problems for for those people that look at it every day, but you kind of have that ability to look at it fresh? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, mean, I can I can think of or think of OKRs as I say as a strategic execution framework, and actually OKRs themselves are really simple. You know, it's, it's it's those two questions, you know, the objective and the key result. And they represent the outcome you're trying to achieve. But for them to really work, we have to connect them to strategy. So what I find quite often with organizations is that that strategy isn't very well articulated. And as I said before, in my career, I have worked in strategy. And I get to ask those kind of questions. what, What is the longer term path for the organization? And they, they they kind of bring OKRs in generally because they think we need goals. But what it reveals to them is that there's another challenge that underlies it, which which um, they hadn't really thought about quite so much. You know, quite often with strategy, it's in people's heads. Um, if and if you talk to the CEO, the COO, and the CPO, they've probably got quite different views of that. Unless it's written down, it's a living kind of document. And when I go in. I often find that situation and we start with OKRs, but then start to say, okay, but let's start to articulate what the, what the strategy is organization is. So I kind of call it a bit of a Trojan horse and you'll find a few people in OKR world use that terminology. I think anyone in product could probably speak to exactly what you're saying there about strategy that, you know, and, and I think a lot of people in product can recognize and know it, but maybe don't always have the answers to, to fix that, right? That if you were to go even down to an individual product manager level in a team, you know, four product managers, what's the strategy? They'd probably give you a snippet of the answer, which is the same. And then there's a divergence, right? Where it's then in somebody's head mm-hmm. that you kind of actually, when you line them all up as a full piece is not the same, mm-hmm. you know? Just stepping back for a minute, if you know, let's let's talk idiot's guide for a second. What is an OKR and, and what are they used for? So, as I said, OKRs are objectives and key results. So there's two parts of it. There's the objective, which is the qualitative definition of what you're trying to achieve. So, for example, um, Netflix might want to become a leader in um, in their own content 
So as as people like Disney start to set up their own streaming service, they need to become a content maker in them, as, themselves. So they create this objective, and the key result is how you measure progress towards that goal. And the, the key results are the critical a critical part because those are the things you're measuring yourself against. And Felipe and I were quite dogmatic about key results being outcomes. And what that means is they are we define them as measurable beneficial effects. And the measurable part is really critical. Um, Marissa Meyer, a very early Google employee, I think number 11, went on to Yahoo CEO. She says if it's not, if it hasn't got a number, it's not a key result. Totally agree with that. And those measurable beneficial effects can be for anyone in the, or any stakeholder of the organization. But the most obvious thing is a customer. And when I talk about OKRs, I always say the best represent value for the customer because that's what products are all about. That's what business is all about. But they can also be in the in a modern world. They can be for your employees. So most companies now prioritize having a great employee experience. They can be for the business itself. So uh, sometimes you just want to save money. You know, how can I? Help? build efficiency into an organization. And the final group is just general stakeholders. And think of, um, for example, the climate now. It's such a hot topic. Plenty of organizations want to reduce their carbon footprint. So the measurable beneficial effect there is for the whole planet in a sense, but it's still a valid goal. So they're still, they're all all following this path of the measurable, their outcomes, um, and yeah, they can be for any group. And a very, I think you touched on it a few times within there about outcomes mm-hmm. and how, in in your opinion, you know the key results need to be outcome based. Yeah. And a very popular phrase in in product, certainly at the minute, is outcomes over mm-hmm. outputs. How, how, in your opinion, does OKRs actually help with that outcomes based thinking? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and it, you're, you're touching really on one of the most common failure points of OKRs. There, when when this doesn't happen. I think it, it happens because the whole principle of OKR is you talk about what you're trying to achieve rather than what you're trying to deliver. And that's really fundamental, that definition, which is why I like to make the key results, outcomes, and measurable beneficial effects in you know, my terms. And when you start, what happens when you start to think about outcomes? I ask, when, when I set OKRs, I ask one very important question which is, can you tell me a few different ways you may achieve this goal? And most often, as human beings, we jump to solutions. It's just in our nature. You know, James Clear will tell you that. Um, we, we see a pattern and we think we know the solution to it. What we try to do with OKRs is we say, okay, we know we've succeeded when an outcome happens. But then you ask that question. Tell me three different ways that you could achieve that. And that's that's quite hard because you'll probably jump to one solution straight away and then you'll sit there and you'll be fixated on that solution. And that's that human nature kicking in. And by I kind of when I'm setting OKRs, I lock them in a room um, and until they've come up with this different ways for, for achieving the key result, um, I, I don't consider the key result written until that, that happens. And it's tough. It can be really hard to shift that mindset because you fixated and, and often you realize that what happens if they've set a key result, which is just them thinking we're going to do this project and this is what will happen if we do that project. 
And that's kind of the wrong way around to think about it. So you're trying to completely do a 180 on that, focus completely on the outcome, and then think broadly, you know, have some divergent thought initially about how you might achieve it. And what you want to do then, where it really kicks in and becomes powerful, is when you're checking in and looking at I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about this, you're looking to see progress towards your goal. And if you fixate on one solution and you just go down a rabbit hole on um, you know, building whatever that is or producing whatever that is, there's a very strong risk. You know, most ideas don't work that you'll end up not achieving your key result. What you're looking for is for teams and organizations to employ short feedback loops. Try and find out and build confidence as quickly as possible that the idea they've chosen is the most suitable one to achieve that goal. Um, and generally, that's not how teams and organizations work. They may spend a little bit of time on discovery and deciding if it's the best best option, but then they'll dive feet first in and they'll spend three, six months you know, working on something quite big without really building that confidence that it's going to achieve the goal they want. So it's it's that encouraging the short feedback loops is where it really actually helps. That's actually really interesting that how you're lining it up, I think, with some other key principles within product. And it, when you say it out loud, it sounds obvious, right? But I don't think, and, and we're going to jump into you know some of the, the failures of how people implement OKRs in a minute, but that point of it's almost it's not the first thing that comes into your head that just becomes your key result mm-hmm. because, okay, we could measure it like that, so that's how we'll do it. Like you say, as humans, we we naturally just jump into solutions, right? Yeah. And we all do it at times, right? And we have to kind of pull ourselves in. And I think mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard anybody really talk to it in such plain terms about the deep thought, I guess, that's required to actually what are the key results here and not just the first thing that pops into your head, but that, you know, the deep thought, lining it up, the measurable feedback loops as well that are short that you can actually check in, like you say, and are we are we hitting that and is it achieving the outcome that we that we want? Yeah, you're looking for, the, for for that building of confidence. So you don't always build confidence by watching the key result jump up because with the best will in the world, you're probably not working in a feedback loop which is in days, which we'd love to have. And that you know, when we get leading measures, that's you know, that's what we're trying to achieve. So you're looking to build confidence in other ways. So that could be user research, could be market research, could be the way you test the ideas. But yeah, it's all about just building that confidence level. And as I think Martin, one of the things that really stuck with me from my SVPG training was, and you, you're already inspired of the four risks. You know, the, the um, help me out when I forget one usability, viability, feasibility, and the business risk, which also includes ethics. And almost what you're doing is you're thinking, what's the biggest hurdle to me succeeding next? And quite often, um, I think Marty says that usability risk is the hardest one. And it's not, that doesn't mean UX. That means, can I build a solution to the customer problem that solves the problem in a way that they can get value from it and that we can capture that value? And if you've got that mindset in place, you're iterating quickly to think, what's the next biggest risk? And I think OKRs work hand in hand with that really well. Absolutely. So let's let's explore some OKR failures because I think um, I think every product manager has probably seen OKRs implemented badly, um, and I'm sure we've all done it badly ourselves. Because mm-hmm. I know, yeah, I, I certainly have. And I was actually reading an article by 
um, Itamar Gilad on OKRs. And yeah. I hope I've not butchered his name, but he, he says, uh, and the quote from the article is, all the management tools, OKRs are the easiest to misuse, overuse and abuse, and that this is a major problem because bad OKRs can amplify the issues the organisation is troubled with rather than actually fix them. So what are the most common mistakes that you see people make when using and implementing OKRs? Yeah, that's a that's a great quote. Quite, quite depressing, but he's right. Um, and I think that it comes from the fact that OKR is a very, very simple, lightweight framework. And it's it's it shines a light on the problems you have in an organization, but it doesn't necessarily fix them. So I guess problem number one is the most common problem is that people don't think in terms of outcomes. So they write an objective and the key result will be things like uh, let's run a marketing campaign or we're going to release version two of our platform or we're going to internationalize our product. And it will be what I would call an output. And of course, all that's doing is acting like a project management tool. It's nothing to do with outcomes. And you'll sit in a session and say, okay, when's that being released? Whereas this question should be, am I building my confidence of the outcome? So OKRs as task management is problem number one. And um, honestly, I think everyone makes that mistake. So Felipe, if you ever get a chance to do Felipe Castro's training, at the point where he really introduces the whole concepts, I don't know if you remember the scene in The Matrix. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that one, Mark, but it's a, it's an old film with Keanu Reeves. Great film, great actor also. And he uses the scene where Neo is going to jump from one skyscraper to the other. And inside The Matrix, you can do that because there are no limits. And, it, and of course, what happens is they're all sitting there saying everyone fails the first time, and of course Neo falls flat on his face like everyone else does. And that's exactly what OKRs are like. I've never seen an organization get it really right the first time. I think it, it, it's a learning process because it connects to so many things. And the most common initial mistake is because you've always got stuff in flight. I'm sure you've got plenty of initiatives and projects running at the moment. If you suddenly switched into OKRs, your natural thought is going to be to plug those into the OKRs somehow. So I think that's why it happens at an early stage because there are tasks already thinking you're thinking, how do I include that? So you you really articulate the tasks as key results. So that's that's definitely problem number one. And everyone makes that mistake. I remember the first time I wrote them, they were they were tasks. I cringe now and I've deleted them all so you won't find them, but I've I've definitely been yeah, I've I've been there. So that's that's probably mistake number one. Um, there are a lot. The, the most damaging mistake, I think, is using OKRs for performance management. And I completely understand why this happens. Having been a line manager for most of my career, the one thing you want from appraisals and that performance management conversation is fairness. You want you want to be fair. You want Mark to get the reward that he deserves for that year. And what better way is there to uh, um, judge fairness than with numbers? Um, but the reality is, it, it's not, it's based all on fairness and not about how goals work. Because if you if I say to you, okay, your OKRs for this year will define your bonus, your natural response is going to be, I'll set them low. Um, I think John Doerr calls it sandbagging. Um, I think Christina Woodkey talks about 
you know, no one who needs to keep their pay their families more, you know, mortgage and keep their family fed is going to risk really, you know, difficult goals for their bonus or for their pay. So you've got that first problem. The second aspect of that problem, I would say, is it causes an alignment issue. So to be really fair, you can't just have a team-based OKR because if you've got some people not pulling their weight or people leave the team at the wrong time, the team will struggle. So maybe we need to create goals for Mark himself. So instantly then, you've got a team of eight. That means you've got eight times as many key results. Um, The overhead of that is enormous. So one client I went to, an insure tech, they wanted some help, struggling with focus, had 200 people, and I opened their OKR tool. And there were 700 key results in there between 200 people. And that was because they thought everyone had to have an OKR. And yeah, you can immediately see just the overhead of that. It's horrible. You also create a problem with one of the things that people mistake with OKRs is that they can change. If you learn, OKRs are about learning. If you learn that the OKRs are wrong, change them. Don't be dogmatic and stick with them for the rest of the quarter. So you do that for a team. You've also got to change eight people's individual OKRs. So those are probably the two systemic problems i see um the two biggest mistakes i see the third i would i would say is not really an okr problem it's not having that strategy that we talked about earlier and do organizations really have that because okr is a strategic execution framework they work much much better when you have a shared understanding of strategy so those are the, those are the top three if you ask if you ask 10 different okr practitioners you'll probably get 11 different answers to that to that question, but that would be my three biggest, most common failures. And I've seen all three of those. Uh, yeah. So yeah, an extra, an extra mistake is not, is this kind of idea of set and forget. And I remember without giving the name of the organization away, it was the last organization I was employed to work with directly as an, as a, as an FTE. And we we weren't set working with OKRs, but we had goals. And I remember sitting in the end of one year, setting the goals. And in October the following year, we brought the goals up again. And there were still question marks in all the targets. So that's the ultimate set and forget. But with OKRs, quite often what happens with teams is they'll write them. And then three, four weeks later, their relative never looks at them again. Um, and that's what, you, what you're doing with OKRs is you're saying... This is our key strategic priority for this time period. So they're point-in-time goals. If that's not something you want to talk about every week, what on earth are you talking about? I really don't get it. If you, if the most important thing, priority, isn't on your mind, what is? So th- that tells me one of two things. Either you haven't got to the n- nugget of, um, of, uh, of what an OKR should be, or you've got so many things going on that you can't focus on anything for any particular time. So, yeah, set, I, I call it set and forget. That's definitely one of the major problems. And, uh, you know, if you think of OKRs as bringing focus to organ organisation, that's where you see it happening. And, and I say the biggest success indicator that people are going to stick with it is if they're talking about it every week. And then my best clients, they get into that habit. The CEO is talking OKRs every single week. And and asking difficult questions rather than all the operational stuff that yeah, is always there to be talked about. They're, they're focal points. And I think we've all seen set and forget. I think we've probably all done set and forget as well. And I think the two points you mentioned there, you know, if it's if it's not your top priority, you're not talking about it all the time, then 
it kind of slips off the radar, which is, again, from a human perspective, it's understandable, right? If it's not top priority, it kind of naturally slips off. I think the other thing that you touched on there um, around the kind of kind of personal base, so, you know, like bonus incentives and things like that, I guess in you know, going back to point one about outcomes over outputs as as the as the key result really often if it's kind of personal based it naturally slips into an output right you know i'm going to deliver x by then i'm going to do this much by that point so you kind of those two kind of merge into one i guess that you, you're kind of making two mistakes at, at once yeah yeah absolutely that's and that's that's common and i think before okr we had this thing called mbos and they were supposed to be management by objective, but they often became management by delivered X, Y, and Z. And you think of managers who want to be, I think the control freaks, the white word, but believe that they've got the right answers and they're setting the tasks for people to do. OKRs actually feel like a really good system for that because I can say to Mark, okay, Mark, here's your objectives, here's your key result, and there are a list of the things you've got to deliver. So you've got no freedom to actually make an impact yeah, you're kind of constraining them, like to to what it says in that list. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, this idea that we employ smart people and then um, let them and empower them to do the right things is really crucial. I think it's always worth just touching on what people should do, and I think my advice would be read empowered. <laughs> because that gives a much better view of how those kind of performance management conversations should happen. It should be, you know, weekly conversations with your manager where they're coaching you, where they're supporting you, where they tell you where you're falling short so that when you get to the end of the cycle, um, you're not, you're not surprised by that performance review. It's, you know, we've been talking about it all year with your manager. I've certainly been in organizations where your one kind of major touch point is that annual review and you sit down thinking, I have no idea how this is going to go. I think I've done a good job, you know, and you go into it, right? It's uh, whereas other organizations I've been in, it's that open dialogue all the time, touch points, you know what you've got to do, you know, and you get the support. I think that's always a, an important thing on, on kind of personnel management side is that you get the support from, from your line manager, but also you feel that they're invested in you. They empower you to actually do the job you've been employed to do, and and they want to see you succeed. And I think, you know, for me at the minute, I, you know, I have that, and it, it's actually such a blessing, you know, that exactly the person that is responsible for managing your career, I guess, for that period of time, is actually trying to push you to the next level and and excel you. So, yeah, massively important. And, and yeah, and those things are not always totally cultural. You know, this idea that people leave managers, it's, it's a cliche, but it's one I absolutely believe in. And when people have left my team, I've always took a long, hard look and thought about what I could learn. And I've made plenty of mistakes as a line manager, but it's not necessarily a company-wide thing. And so when I worked at, um, at Elsevier, um, they're not working there now, so I can say this, but I, I know people who met with every... I had a team of 14 direct reports and I tried to meet with everyone every week. I know people in other teams who hadn't had a one-to-one with their line manager for 18 months. So it isn't always cultural. It's sometimes just individual behavior. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I think actually certainly when you're looking for new jobs and you think about culture and things like that, you, you're not looking necessarily always at individual. You're looking at company culture. And I think that's a really good point, actually. Company culture can be one thing, but actually management culture of who's going to be your boss is is massive, right? Yeah. So OKRs, I think I'm right in saying, should normally have one to five key results, and I think is most common to have like two or three, right? It's somewhere around there. And 
obviously, as you said earlier, you should be uh, measuring and checking in with with those key results. Yep. Is missing or partially missing uh, an OKR a failure? Absolutely not. And you will see a lot of dialogue about um, moonshot OKRs and roofshot OKRs and things like that to explain the aspiration level. I think if you think about it, one of the most difficult parts of OKR as a framework is setting the target. And setting targets in a domain where you've done lots and lots of work is relatively easy. But let's say you, you want to have a 10% improvement in the conversion rate of part of your funnel and you're an established company, that's probably a safe target. It's not probably where the biggest impact's made generally. The biggest impact that companies make is when they're going into uncertain areas. And that's setting a target for that is is really difficult. And I I actually say sometimes say to teams, get your baseline. So you need to know how you measure your key result. That's really fundamental. That's another mistake you see is that organizations don't write down how we measure and you get two months in and two different people have got a different view. But, yeah, so in terms of the targets, I sometimes say get your baseline and just give it a few weeks. Don't worry about a target. Let's just see you know, where you feel the needle can move to because what you want teams to do is their best. You want to have the best outcome. And if you set a low target and beat it by 20%, that's not better than setting a high target and getting 50% of it. So my advice is don't overly worry about the target itself. Maybe maybe do something like, what's a stretch goal? And record that. Record a good enough. And also record a, oh, crap, we're really in trouble here. We need to really think about what we're doing because, you know, this is our strategy, uh, strategic hypothesis falling apart. So have a range potentially with your OKRs. And if you're falling short, think about why that is. It's because of, and it could be because the target's too high. It could be because the strategic hypothesis is flawed. And the sooner you find out, the better. Or it could be that you're underperforming as a team. It could be that, you know, maybe we aren't doing it. Maybe our feedback loops are too too long or you know, whatever it is. Um, but failure in itself of hitting a key result is not is not necessarily a terrible thing. It's context dependent, um, but you have to have an open and honest conversation about it. It's very easy to say, "Oh well, it was too hard a target." Don't don't just fall back into that you know, that default position. And I guess there's an opportunity when falling short to actually step back and to to speak to the name of the podcast, you know, grow through failure. Is actually to step back and think. Okay, what's not quite right here? Mm-hmm. What what can we learn? How do we how do we reset and go again? Mm-hmm. And I, I quite like your idea there of having kind of multiple measures within the within the key result that kind of yeah, kind of like thresholds. The thresholds exactly that kind of benchmarks your your progress. It, it certainly seems to me that actually there's more to be learned in missing than hitting. Arguably, yeah, depending on what what the particular goal is. Um, when you when you set an OKR, there are so many things in place. So, first of all, the most important thing I would say is this idea that OKRs are represent you executing your strategy, and you are assuming that hitting that key result is valuable, and that might not be the case because there's a hypothesis entrenched in that decision of to use that key result that moving that needle is worthwhile and it's an important thing. And that may not be true. So you've always got to be thinking of what's the ultimate impact I'm looking to have. 
that's really crucial. That connection is is kind of implicit there. And you think about you know things like North Star. There, those assumptions are baked into it. And you, the most important thing is if you find that assumptions flawed, that's the biggest learning you can have. It's not fun, but at least when you know that, you can pivot and you know take a look again. So that's the first kind of thing. The second thing is. Are my targets sensible? So that's the second kind of level of assumptions there. And the third level, which is you know really critical, and as a team you're kind of most embedded, focused on at times, is have we done our best job in achieving those key results? So there's three kind of types of learning, I think, in it, in every kind of period of goal setting. It was interesting you talk about um, North Star there, and I, a question just sprung into my head instantly was how potentially going back to some of the common mistakes, but are OKRs able to be effective if there's not a clear product vision to kind of hang your hat on and say that's where we're going, or do you think you need that to actually set clear OKRs? I'm, I'm always, I don't know if you noticed, I'm, I'm very loathe to talk in absolutes, and you can have very bad practice and achieve incredible results. And I strongly suspect that Elon Musk is going to actually have some of those, despite doing everything we think is wrong. I think from a success and in inverted commas perspective, Twitter is going to be better as a commercial product than it was before, despite the fact him doing everything we think is wrong. So I'm loath to say um, you can't succeed. But if you haven't got that vision, what what tends to happen is – you get to the end of the quarter, you set a key result, you find something everyone gets behind, and you get to the next quarter or the next period, and it's really hard again to think about what's next because you haven't got that vision. You haven't got that where we're trying to get to and what's our set of hypotheses. You know, What hypotheses are we going to test now? What comes after that? In, um, I think it's Roger Martin who says, what, what would have to be true? Those kind of questions you're not asking. So it's possible, but it's much more difficult. And... I think where North Star really helps, I kind of see North Star as being part of your strategy because it codifies the hypotheses of how your metrics kind of connect together. Um, you know, you have a belief that if we move this needle, it connects to this North Star, which then connects to the impact. And when you have that in place, frankly, OKRs become pretty easy. Because you just look at your North Star, and that can go, it can get a bit fractal like. You can go back, and this is an input to that and an input to that. But you're looking at the North Star and you're thinking, okay, where can we have the biggest impact in this period? It makes it so much easier if you've got that kind of model. I've said it's the biggest emerging trend with OKRs is strong companies producing those models as a kind of connection between strategy and OKRs. So I want to move on to talk about leaders and their relationship with. OKRs. I think certainly one of the things I've seen through my career in product is, and certainly in more kind of traditional, larger organizations, is potentially a failure to grasp the concept of OKRs, or, or maybe it's not necessarily the concept, but more the uh, embedding it within the kind of company culture. Why? Why, why, why does that happen? Well, I think... Well, I think if you look, if I look at it another way, when I when I get approached by a potential client, I always ask them what kind of problems they're trying to solve, and I hope they all say things like, "We're trying to get more focused. We're trying to um, work on shorter feedback loops. We're trying to get better alignment." When they ask things like, "I want more visibility of what teams are doing," 
you can see there's a problem. And why leadership is so important for OKRs is because I think it's the, and it's probably true in lots of other things, but I think leadership behavior is the single biggest criteria of success. And there are the kind of, there are quite a few things I think of, you know, I start with, and when I, when I engage with a client, I always say leaders have to go first because you need to learn what OKRs mean. Because if I, if we start with a team in the middle of the organization and we've got this kind of seagull management of leaders diving in and saying, forget all that do this pet project for me, then OKRs are meaningless. So I look for a willingness of leaders to give teams problems to solve and not features to build, which I'm sure in your job you've got that because you would, you would hate not to have that. But it's really common that actually what leaders are doing is saying build X, Y, and Z. So they need that mindset of opportunities in Teresa Torres's language. Yeah. What opportunity are we working on? The teams are then free to find their right solution. So if you give someone a goal... They need to be able to work out themselves how to get there as a team. You want leaders to focus on evidence. So when leaders make decisions, they give an evidence basis for it. And also they're willing to have their minds changed by evidence. And that's that's those are two quite separate things because leaders build up a mental model. And then Mark comes along and actually you've got a different set of hypotheses and you can show evidence that their model's wrong. They need to be willing to change their view based on that new evidence. And that's really, that's high level um, leadership, I would say. It's not It's not incredibly common. You know, it's resisting that hippo behavior. It's, it's, it's evidence-based. And I guess more traditional organizations are, are, are kind of still in that traditional thinking, you know, mm-hmm. where it kind of does just cascade, build this, by then, go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially when you've got a big product and they, they kind of think in terms of this is what the product's going to look like in nine months' time. You're going to build this bit. You're going to build this bit. You know, roadmaps. Product roadmaps can be the most inhibiting thing. You can, uh, And I kind of uh, – I, I like Jenna Busto's um, Now, Next, Later. Yeah. That's 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 a roadmap which I can get get along with, but yeah, it's that's how traditional organisations have worked for a very long time. I think the other thing that leaders need to provide, and it's I know it's so talked about so often these days, is psychological safety. You know, this feeling that you can experiment and try. And coming back to the whole, you know, the whole reason for your podcast is the failure is something that it, it is natural. You know. You, if you never fail, you're not you're, you're you're being much too conservative in your goals, really. So psychological safety absolutely needs to be there, and not not just in the the failure part, also in the this willingness to speak up. So if I'm the leader and I'm saying this is our new strategy, and you're sitting in a meeting, Mark, and you you know that this is flawed, you feel completely confident to put up your hand and say, Ian, you're talking crap. Um, maybe you wouldn't know those words, but you, you get the general idea. So. Yeah, probably, and it would be deserved. But but the leadership behaviour is right at the core of OKRs. Without that kind of support for empowering teams, um, you're you're wasting your time. I think I think Marty has said somewhere he tells he he often says to teams, don't organisations don't use OKRs. You're not ready for them. You haven't got the right context. Um, and it's absolutely true. And all of these, all of these problems, OKRs will make worse. I think you you pointed that out at the start that OKRs can amplify these kind of problems and make make things worse rather than better. Yeah, and I think 
for me, that kind of traditional, um, those traditional companies often the, um, the kind of downside for those companies is sometimes leveled at about that empowerment and autonomy isn't there. And actually that's probably where they struggle to implement something like OKRs. Cause actually for me, when you look at it and it works in a successful way, it's about empowerment and autonomy to actually go and solve problems, like you said before, and, and achieve outcomes rather than just churn out features and be a feature factory, right? Yeah, and I, I, I've seen. Um, I, I know one leader who was a um, MD of a product who's now gone on to become a CPO of a pretty large company, and I, I heard her say, "This is it's too complicated for them. I need to tell them what to do," which is kind of. <laughs> Scary, really, and and these were these were not you know these were not Paul she was working with, but these are people with PhDs, people who were working close with the customers. So yeah, it, it's it's a lot of onus on the leader. You work with a lot of organisations, right, of different sizes. Mm-hmm. I think we're kind of we're touching upon this, and I think it's quite a nice segue into this and how. How I read it when I when we've spoken and when I look at your website, I see it as being able to access untapped growth uh, potential by using things like OKRs and focusing on outcomes. Mm-hmm. Do you think culturally, and I think you were just talking to this slightly, companies actually allow enough space for their employees to experiment, fail, learn, grow, or is the pattern still very much focused on outputs and usually any mistake is an expensive one where people have just gone and built the first solution that came into the head and you know delivered it or is it does it vary it, it absolutely varies but i would say at least until recently and it'd be interesting to see how the current kind of turmoil in the tech industry plays out but there is an absolute change in terms of leadership um in terms of that that mindset so um you know at Elsevier, we went from um, a leader who was a CEO who was, you know, he had a fantastic career and achieved a lot, but he was quite directive in a way. And it was all about results. It was always about the, the 2% growth that Elsevier always seemed to achieve. He was replaced by someone who was all about people, an amazing person, Kumso Bayat, who has got, uh, she's. Uh, She's, uh, actually not sure. she's got kids in her early teens, so she has a pretty full life, lives the work-life balance as well as a CEO in that kind of role does, but is always erring on, I shouldn't use the term, but always advocating for psychological safety and for people to try and, yeah, and fail, ultimately. It's that, if I try, and you think of all the great achievements, or a lot of the great achievements, were well, when people were trying something incredibly difficult, you're not going to try that if you feel you're going to get a kick up the backside if you fail. So I see that kind of leadership becoming more and more common. However, as with anything like this, there are a lot of leaders who talk about that kind of empowerment and in reality don't live it so it's fake empowerment there's there's quite a bit of that as well and and i think okrs are one of again talking about how they get misused i think leaders use it as a pretend empowerment tool we use okrs we have empowered teams but below the surface that's really not true at all they're kicking up the backside if you're not on top of your okrs even if there are outcomes and actually i think that leads into my next question which is is it better to fail trying to do OKRs 
than not having them at all? Or again, does it depend on how you actually fail doing them? Yeah, I'm never. You, you can always. My first answer to every question you ask, unless it's are Arsenal better than Everton, will always be it depends. Because let's not pretend there's any 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 but one right answer to that. I do apologise for that. I owed you that one. Uh, no, I'll let you off that one. <laughs> so it, it does. It does depend. It depends what mindset you go into it with. If you go into it with a mindset of we're going to learn, we don't know the answer now. What worked anywhere else is not necessarily it's going to work here. So the correct path for my company will emerge over time. It will change over time. We need to continuously improve. Uh, we're going to make some mistakes. Maybe in some ways things will get a bit worse before they get better. If you go into that mind, that mindset, there is no bad failure, I don't think. If you go into it with kind of different perspectives of when and how it's going to change and on what time scale, then yeah, you, it, it can be a completely different, a completely different experience. I mean, one of my favourite books, which talks about emerging change and the fact that you can't just copy a blueprint is sooner safer happier by john smart it's it's one of those that goes under the radar a bit of product management because it's a it's agile oriented but john is very very good at articulating this emergent truth that comes out of organizations and continuous improvement he's very much on the outcomes focus he's very much about agile but the, the reality is that John has a, and it's proven. He, you know, he he did this based on the work he did at Barclays. I mean, do you think big old companies don't get much bigger and much older? And you have to go into OKRs with that kind of a mindset. That's when it all. Then there is no bad failure, in my opinion. It really, you know, it, it depends where you come at it from. I think I think perspective is and and kind of optics is so important mm. when you think about failure because I think the word often has negative connotations, but. <laughs> Yeah. If you look at if you look at how many successful people, athletes, whatever mm. you want to look at, anyone in their, anyone in their field, how many interviews or, or quotes do you see that you could stick on your kitchen wall almost that talk about actually failing? You know, was it Michael Jordan? You miss every shot you don't take, yeah. and even things like that that are speaking to well, actually, you've you've got to throw yourself in the deep end, and you're gonna you're gonna fail. And I think. The concept of, um, I think it's 10,000 hours, right, mm, where yeah. um, it, it takes, um, for the life of me, I can't think who, who wrote the book on it, but it takes 10,000 hours to actually become an expert in something. That, to me, says that to get there, there's a lot of failures, a lot of learnings, the bumps and scrapes to actually... You know, to to be the expert, you've got to go through a lot there to, you know, namely nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine hours until you're the expert. But you, it, I think an OKRs, I think, is no different. You've kind of got to jump in, try, and like we said earlier, fail a few times. You're going to get it wrong, um, and learn from it. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think. I mean, I think the, the books. Is it Malcolm Gladwell? Is it? Is it him? Yes, that's it. I mean, that's true. And I think as a as a consultant or a coach, those are the hours you need to put in. And honestly, if I look back at you know, some of the mistakes I've made with my early clients, hopefully I did value. But if I was to have my time with them again, I would do things completely differently. So I don't know if I'm at 10,000 hours, but I'm, le- I'm definitely still learning. And I know that that's not an end point. Um, what you have to have in an organization, though, is, and I'm really big on this, is... You have to start delivering value as early as possible. 
and this is this this lines up with outcomes thinking rather than output thinking. Output thinking is you get all the value when you finish. Um, I think with OKRs, you need to think about, okay, what value am I getting early on? And it, it's not going to be a complete solution. There will be mistakes. There will be mess-ups. But you want to see things improving relatively quickly. I mean, even if it's better conversations happening, better awareness of what the, the company priorities are, there should be benefits relative. And if, you, if, you, if you're sitting there after three months – and you can't see anything that's improved, then maybe it's the wrong framework. Maybe there's something else you need to look at. So you, you do need to get 10,000 hours to be an expert, but you shouldn't have to wait 10,000 hours to get better and see and see value from something. I think that's a really interesting perspective on that. And I think that speaks to your short feedback loops, right? And, and you know, OKRs plays really well with that, that actually you don't set and forget and look in at the end of the year. You've got to be constantly looking at these things, measuring and, and actually uh, looking at your performance against them. And, and are you meeting them? And if not, change there and then, not review later on right so the the short thinking loop is really important here yeah it is and it, it's just kind of part of why the whole job of product is so hard there's so many different things you're thinking of you know you're managing your stakeholders you've got your career to think about but you've also got how do i get the right you know the right support for my product um you're thinking about your customers you know potentially you've got suppliers to manage as well you're wondering about the team and you know improving the skills of the team you've got maybe you're you're reading accelerate and you're trying to get better at your delivery cadence there are so many things that can have an impact on your performance as a team it's really hard to know where to focus it's yeah it's I think it's why I'm a coach and I'm not doing a job like yours, which, frankly, your job is a lot harder than mine because you're on the you're on the firing line for, for outcomes. And in truth, I'm I'm really not. And you have so many different things to worry about every every single day. It's tough. Amen to that. <laughs> um, I saw you tweeted the other day about some of your early failings in uh, setting OKRs. And as somebody that now coaches that, I think it'd be really useful to just share some of those early failings with with the audience so that they don't make them and can learn from <laughs> your failure. Yeah, if we're talking just, I mean, I, I hang up, as we've discussed before, Mark, I've had a lot of failure, so I've got a great catalogue of things to draw on. For any OKR field, I would say I've made those classic mistakes I talked about at the start. So I, I did the... Even though in my heart I knew it wasn't right to have tasks as a key result, I let them through because people really struggle to um, get the concept of an outcome. And I, I, I'm well known for being really dogmatic about that, even amongst other OKR practitioners. Even Christina Wodke is not as kind of dogmatic about outcomes being measurable as I am. But I, I really believe that when I haven't done that, it's been my biggest error. Um I think another mistake is jumping straight into OKR setting. And OKRs are in a context, and I think it's always worth spending a little bit of time thinking about the strategy first. And sometimes in an OKR session, I've asked questions like, imagine you've had a great next period. So if you're setting any OKRs, we're at the end of the year. It's been amazing. What did you observe? And it's a really inspiring question. People love it. And it gets the creative juices flowing. But you shouldn't really take tackle that kind of thing in isolation. It's better to 
spend some time outside and before the meeting to think about those kind of questions um, because OKRs are about setting the goals around that. Um, so, yeah, doing the right preparation before an OKR setting session, definitely one of mine. Um, allowing teams not to track, not to check in regularly enough. We'll come back to it in a month. Even if you, after the first month, it's already gone. You know, they've already forgotten what OKRs are more often than not. Whereas if you come back to them after a week, it, it starts to help solve that. If people are doing lots of different things not related to their OKRs, you've got a focus problem. Are these other things really useful? Can we stop stuff? Um, or it, it, the OKRs themselves not represent the most important thing? So that's 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 a mistake I've made classically. And I've also had a go at setting individual OKRs. Um, that was in my first use of them. Complete and utter mistake. It's just massive overhead. So I've made all the classic mistakes, really. Um, and as much as I, you know, we tell people not to do them, I think part of it is part of that 10,000 hours you were talking about. You kind of have to see what goes wrong to really appreciate why they're a mistake. Yeah. And you, you just, this is slightly unrelated to the kind of line of questioning at this point, but you, you said there about an annual OKR and, and reviewing but actually that you need to have those constant touch points, otherwise you just forgot about them. How do people actually implement that, right, to say, okay, this is a big objective that is, you know, an annual one. How do you actually keep that front and centre so you don't set and forget like we said earlier? Yeah, so annual OKRs really are only... They're useful at any level, potentially, because they kind of talk about your direction of travel. I'm not... What you need to do is then to think... What leading metrics have I got to predict that success? And very, very rarely are annual goals um, leading metrics. So what you're doing is you're thinking about the next two months, the next three months, whatever, and setting some goals for that. And there are various ways to break that down. You can, you know, you can get an annual goal by thinking about approaching different markets. To, to or breaking the problem down into smaller kind of using hypotheses, smaller components. I think I can get more, um, more better user acquisition and breaking that problem into three parts and focusing on one part of it for one quarter, another part of it for another quarter. So it's it's all about breaking it down and having more manageable problems, which is really what I, I guess good agile thinking is all about. It's about breaking problems down into manageable parts. And that's that's what how you get from annual OKRs to, to quarterly. But what you have to do is you have to make sure the hypothesis that underpins that breakdown is strong. So we were talking about earlier um, that relationship between the, the goal and what the key result itself represents. The key result is hypotheses. Going back to the start of your answer on uh, some of your biggest mistakes, you touched on um, you know, potentially some other areas that uh, you've 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 failed in the past, and I think you've had a long and varied career. Don't think you'd mind me saying. Yeah, yeah, that's your way of calling me old, but I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> I mean, the evidence is in front of you on the camera. It was response to the uh, the Arsenal dig. Um, maybe you could just share, you know, some that just stand out to you and how you actually learn from them. Because I think for me, failure is good when the growth comes on the back of it right and actually that for me is what i call the untapped growth where 
if you actually retrospectively look at it and learn from it, there's a huge potential there. So maybe you know, one or two from your career that you could pick out where you've actually you know, had a had a fall and, and picked yourself up and learned from it. Well, I think the, the first one I'll share is I don't think I learned from it until way too late. So I'm going to share it because... I don't. I don't want anyone else to make the same mistake. And I, I shared. I wrote a tweet about it, and it got six hundred and fifty thousand views. So it clearly resonated with people. And it essentially was that I'm more John Cutler calls a systems thinker, and I inherently look at a big picture. And I thought everyone did. I assumed everyone sees the world like that. I had no idea that it wasn't the case. And when I came into an organization, I saw that big picture and I really struggled to narrow my focus to my work. And the way that manifested itself is when I would sit in, I'd be hearing from leaders, I was very critical about the job they were doing. And and it was because I had my perspective of that big picture. And of course, as I've learned as I've got older... There's so much you don't know about a leader's perspective. I mean, just politics in the leadership thing, having seen that firsthand these days, uh, more recently, the impact that plays. And what I've done essentially is I've parked empathy for those people. I judged them by a standard which wasn't fair. Um, I often asked really difficult questions in town halls, and I think some of them were fair questions, and I think I was on the right track. But there was always a reason that I didn't understand. I mean, these people weren't stupid. They could probably see what I could see, but there was something else there. And I would drive home these points. And I'd, I'd start off my career. Every job I started off, I got I get promoted within six months. And generally within two years, I'm regarded as a difficult person. And it was because I lacked that empathy, which is kind of crazy. I worked with a uh, volunteer for seven years as a Samaritan, um, engaging my empathy really deeply with people. And yet, for some reason, I couldn't employ that with leaders and and I think it's, you know, how does that help someone else? I think it's, there's a few ways. You can just ask, what does success look like for them? What are some of the challenges you're seeing that we don't see at our level? It's about giving feedback, but realizing they're not going to necessarily act on it because they've got a bigger picture they can see. And that really held my career back significantly um, because the impact I could have was negated because I was just rubbing people up the wrong way. I think your honesty now looking back on that is massive, you know, and I think you, when we spoke before the podcast, you, you talked a little bit about that. And I think last time we spoke about it, you said I was that guy at the town hall that, you know, that asked that question. Mm. But I think what you're actually saying is it's not that the questions weren't valid, but the lack of empathy you had meant you framed it in the wrong way and potentially just pushed people away actually you know, and I think again, when you say that guy at the town hall, often a lot of people want the answer to the question they ask. Yeah, but there's still a, ooh, he asked it. You know, because mm. it's like there is an element of, like you say, maybe the empathy was just lacking. Where you think, okay, yeah, there's so much more going on here, and actually asking it in a different way. Same question in a different way could be mm-hmm. so much more powerful and resonate more, yeah, rather than pushing people in the opposite direction. Yeah, absolutely, and and then accepting when you don't get the answer you naturally want, don't get frustrated. Some you know realize that okay, maybe there's more going on here than I can see, and accept that, even if you're not happy with the answer, and don't let that affect your mindset. I think that's a really valuable piece of advice that, you know, like you said, 650,000 people have seen it on Twitter. Well, 
Less people are going to hear that on the podcast, but who knows? Who knows, Mark? The people are coming back to this in years to come. Oh, that's when that's when Mark started. Look at look look at these early days, and it was all because of your amazing wisdom. No, I think that's that's really honest of you, and I think that's a, a massive piece of advice. A more recent example, yeah. Again, it comes from system thinking, and this was just a hilarious mistake I made with an early client of mine who came to me and said. We want to implement OKRs, and uh, and they've got a perspective on their problem and their issue. And I basically turned around to them and wrote them a report and said, you're not ready for OKRs, you need to look at your strategy. Incredibly stupid. Um, they don't talk to me anymore, um, not surprisingly. And it, it, what you have to – and, it, and it, how this applies to people in every single job is – you're employed to fix a, a look at a particular problem and go back to our examples of product teams being assigned an opportunity. It's no good you then trying to fix a completely different problem for the company. You know, you going off and you're you're responsible for uh, for, a, for a sign on, for example, and you want to actually change a completely different part of the product. You may be right. Maybe that is important. You're employed to look at that particular perspective. And just sometimes you've got to stay in your lane and do a very good job at resolving the particular problem you're focused on. And and it's okay to build that perspective of the bigger picture, but don't fixate on that. Just fix the problem that's in front of you. Do a good job of that. Build your relationships with your leaders. Um, don't try and fix a different problem that you've not been asked to fix, as, as attractive as it may be. Because yeah, and that not surprisingly, as I say, I don't speak to that customer anymore. They um, they probably thought, who the hell is he telling us telling uh, telling us we need a strategy? I mean, frankly, they did, but they won't be listening anyway. I hope. <laughs> is it fair to say that kind of your two examples there are linked in the sense that you know there was an element of lack of empathy and delivery of the message, even if it was the right one? You know, it was just. Not maybe not the right time because I think timing isn't necessarily here because it, it probably was the time to say it, but maybe it just wasn't delivered in the way they needed to hear it. And yeah, well, this is the example where I have learned a lot quicker, not thrown away my whole career on the same mistake for twenty years in this instance. So what I've seen now is this, this idea that you know, OKRs is a Trojan horse, where you start off. And I was speaking to um, you know, another OKR practitioner today who sees the same thing where you go in, you talk about OKRs, do a bit of work on that. And then you ask, okay, so let's have a, how do we connect the strategy to this more closely? And then you can get into the conversation about what having a strategy means and how you can start to develop them and what kind of questions they answer, ask and answer. And OKRs lead naturally in there. So you've got that pathway to get to where you want to get, which is the bigger problem. Strategy is a bigger problem than OKRs, much bigger. That's where most companies fail, not in goal setting. They fail in strategic vision, strategy and vision. And OKRs really lead in there nicely. So in this instance, I did actually learn from my failure rather than kind of blow my career on it, which is a relief. I think that's a fantastic, you know, to the name of the podcast growth there for you and i think perhaps if it hadn't have been for the first example like you say of you how you put it throwing away your the rest of your career maybe you wouldn't have learned so quickly actually this time around you know that that's you know like you say now the trojan horse approach of getting there a bit more slow burner right you will get there and you know you'll get there if it's right to get there Mm. yeah yeah and in a sense, you know, we talk about solutions being emer- emergent. Sometimes for everyone to get on the same pl- page, 
the problem has to emerge in people's minds as well. We don't all get to the same solution at the same speed. And it, there'll be some things that I, it takes me a lot longer to realise what the core problem is. Um, it just, just give people time to catch up with you. So you started on this coaching journey a few years ago now, um, prior to kind of your, your previous career. Was it an easy transition for you to go from uh, kind of employee to now coach and, and, and coaching leadership as well? Yes, it, it, there's two aspects to it. So the things that I share with leaders now, by and large, the same things I've been saying all my career. Um, and it's always a thing as a consultant. And it's very frustrating when you're inside an organization and a consultant walks in and says exactly the same thing you've been saying for two years and suddenly the leader listens. And there is something about being an external person which um, gives you more attention. So that part, the actual what I'm telling them, hasn't been particularly difficult. I'm learning all the time. I'm learning how to deliver the messages, but the, the core message hasn't changed. The transition initially was easy because I worked with Felipe, who Felipe Castro, who is you know, first page of Google search for OKRs, and I learned an enormous amount from Felipe about OKRs themselves. What and then I had a period of really good success. And the mistake I made then was resting on my laurels. I should have used the opportunity to build my audience more, to talk more specifically about OKRs. And you've probably seen on Twitter now, I'm trying to be a bit more providing value, really, helping people learn the challenges of the framework and some of the ways to use it. Um, I, I wasted that time. And so I'm having to kind of go back and do that now and just just build build my reputation as as someone who understands how OKRs can work. And that's that's a slow burn, that kind of thing. So it's yeah, it's a mix. As every, every question you've asked, it, it depends. Some parts have been easy, some parts I've learned slowly on. And yeah, some parts have just been damn hard. I think that goes for every business, but I think uh I'm sure you'll you'll get to where you want to go. Um Last last few questions, um, which I ask to every every guest. But does failure scare you? Not anymore. It's it's there's there's a thing about. I as a kid, I was praised a lot. I was you know very sporty. I was a school rugby captain. I played representative football, athletics. I did well at school initially, and it's praise, praise, praise. And there's a kind of there's kind of research that says the people who get that kind of praise become very risk averse because they don't want to fail because you're not used to failing. Um, and I know, I know, for example, you're a golfer. A terrible one. Uh, well, I'm worse. I guarantee. I guarantee you. Um, and I never wanted to play it because it was so hard, and I couldn't do it. So in that instance, a classic example would be being really scared of failure. I really enjoy the game now, and I'm still rubbish at it, but I don't care. And and I, in a work environment, I would keep my head down sometimes, not in, in a sense of what I would take on. I didn't take on the really risky stuff because I was I was frightened of failure. What what I've learned now is that you know what's the thing that I I talk most about to organisations? Well, two things: focus and short feedback loops. And failure is just a short feedback loop if you use it right. It really is. So <laughs> failure is not something I'm frightened of now. When you're failing, you'll know you're heading in the right direction. Yeah. And you, you've answered my second question now, which has your attitude to failure changed, which, of course, it has. And I think everybody's attitude does. I've 
similar to you, you know, sporty, you know, a lot of praise. You kind of mm-hmm. certainly early in my career, I started my career in recruitment and I was, you know, terrified of, of failing there. And I think that industry is quite brutal in and of itself, you mm. know, just how it operates or certainly how it operated back then in terms of, you know, call times, number of calls out, you know, placements, yeah. you know, and obviously a massive part of remuneration relying on actually your commission that you that you put people in jobs and i remember back then your know, failure wasn't an option you know that wasn't a thing it was you know you now i'm with you you know and it you're right short feedback loop is is exactly that it's fail fast isn't it as people say yeah. you know it's hypothesis you know build or prototype you know whatever you however you want to do it fail learn grow again yeah repeat until you know you reach the outcome the desired outcome so that's uh i think we've both got a very similar attitude there yeah it's, it's taken me a lot longer to learn it than you probably but um and i think of one there's one book which i think embodies this kind of desire to fail quicker and that's um i'm sure you've read it testing business ideas david bland i mean that it's it's very it's very practical yeah you won't use a lot of it any one time, but this idea that we're just trying to find out if I'm wrong as quickly as possible. That's what it's trying to tell you. Rather than building, engineering and building stuff is a very expensive way to learn. We've talked through this podcast, right? Build this by then. And that was always the way to fail really expensively. And, and now I think there's so much literature. You know, you say I've learned quicker than you, but there's so much literature now about the better ways to do this and and... I think, honestly, for um, younger people in the product management space, if you're not reading this literature, you know, culturally, there's so much out there that you could implement to help, you know, further your career, actually change your attitude to failure, because actually, don't be scared of failure, embrace it, because to me, like I've said... That's the untapped growth. If you can actually harness learning from failure individually, as a team, as an organization, that really, for me, where there's so much growth potential. Yeah, and and it has to, but it has to come from leaders. You can't. It's very difficult when you haven't got empowering leadership to do that. And I think there's you know one or two ways you can go there. You either try and fix it or or move on. I've got, I've got one more example I wanted to share with you actually, which was, and I'm trying to make sure I, I don't kind of name or upset anyone by saying it but i remember one particular so in big companies what happens is you have this budgeting cycle and and it's oh it can be the most painful thing where you spend weeks working on the budgets finance get involved you know you're adding up ridiculously accurate numbers which everyone's guessed at and i remember one project that i was kind of tangentially involved with and they'd assigned 25 million dollars to it so it's a fairly big fairly big project and they'd never actually bothered to check that anyone wanted what they were building this kind of you know build it and they will come and i think they'd spent about 14 million dollars before they realized it was a complete and utter waste of time you know build it and they come didn't happen at all and they could have just saved all that money by really narrowing down on, is there a customer problem that people want to solve and will they pay to do it? And 
being commercial to some degree is, is so critical. So, yeah, that's probably the single worst I've ever seen, sort of $14 million just down the drain, um, where they could have probably spent a couple hundred thousand realising that no one really cared about that problem. I've experienced something very similar. Um, and again, big organisation, you know, traditional ways, and you get to the end and everyone goes, oh, <laughs> you know, that that didn't work. Yeah, and then you, then the inevitable fallout of, you know, why didn't it work? Well, that's yeah. That's a good sign when they actually admit it didn't work. I mean, in the in the in the most political organisations, everyone actually looks at each other and great success. You have a launch party, everyone's happy, everyone moves on to the next thing. And I've I've also seen that uh, for sure. Um, Ian, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, as you know, uh, there's a a pay it forward section of this podcast um, where we. The previous guest leaves a, a piece of advice um, for mm-hmm. the for the next guest, and your piece of advice is: if there's anything to do with Arsenal, you can cut it right there. <laughs> it's not because I actually can't give any advice to Arsenal at the minute because they're doing very well, and I really do hope you you win the league. Um, and I hope Thank Everton you. survive relegation, as I'm sure you do yeah, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah, absolutely. The piece of advice is. I would normally say something obvious like fail fast and listen lots, but actually I think we need to think far bigger now. Make sure what you are spending your time doing is going to genuinely make a meaningful, productive and positive difference to both society and the environment in which we live. We're at a critical juncture. We need all hands on deck. Wow, that was a that was a big broad thought. Very, yes, um, I'm not sure whether you listened to uh, my last podcast yet with uh, with Carl Brown, who's the co-founder of a company called Curb. I'm going to um, who are they're trying to build social media 3.0. Wow, and uh, massive massive vision, uh, massive um, behemoth to take on. And hey, maybe they could use some oh, uh, some more outcomes thinking and OKRs. Yeah, that's a that's that's a that's a really big bold thought, isn't it? Fantastic. So, uh, well, we started anyway, Mark. We've done this podcast. That's our first contribution in that in that direction. We have, we have exactly. Ian, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, you too. And, thanks, uh, buddy. I'm going to press the big red button to stop recording. 